Well, we're continuing this conversation about work, and this morning I want to enter into a new conversation about this. I think we'll connect with what many of you are walking through or have walked through in your careers. And as each week, I want us to tie this back also to realize that sometimes our calling, the work that God has given us to do is larger than the, the, the work that we do each week, right? That in retirement, even in those years, or as a stay-at-home mom or dad, you find yourself in a season where God has called you to specific things and to specific callings. And so no one's exempt from this conversation. We all have work that God has called for us in advance to do. But what, no matter what that work is, there are sometimes uh, gray areas in our work that make it difficult. And, and so the, today's conversation is about ethics and ethics related to our work. How do we engage our work in a way that doesn't betray the cause of Christ, that is true to what God has called us to in the midst of sometimes gray areas in our work that it can be a challenge to do so? Um, so I want to start this morning by taking you either back or to a, maybe a moment that's going on right now with your work. That is one of those gray areas, a challenging moment where it's been a challenge to try to follow Jesus and to do something that your work has uh, called you to do or a boss or uh, employer has called you to do. Um, because there's those tension points in our lives that I think it's really important to do in your work. What has been the most challenging moment to remain committed to the way of Jesus? I'll just dwell on that for just a moment. I want you to think about that moment. And, and maybe it was a, a, a moment where you stood up and maybe it was a moment where you were challenged and you realized, man, I didn't step up. And I wish I would have done differently. Or maybe right now you're praying through something that you're being called to do. You have that in your mind right now? What I want to do is I want to speak to that moment this morning. Whether that's a moment in the past or a moment that's present, I want to ask us to rethink what it means to be committed to Jesus in the midst of those challenging moments in the workplace and in the callings that God has given to us. And the trouble with that is I have no idea what I'm speaking into this morning, right? I prayed that God would speak directly to uh, your situations that you're walking through, but I have no idea. And so th- there's going to be a tendency maybe for some of you to say, you know, that didn't apply in calling. You're really pretty naive about this because the truth is I haven't, I haven't worked outside of the church in 10 years. Right. And so it can be easy to kind of pat me on the head and say, yeah, that, that's great Colin, but that's just kind of religious mumbo jumbo. But I think there's something here that uh, that's not just for those of you who work in the secular realm, But it's true for me as well. As I've been struggling with this, uh, particularly myself, what I've realized is there are gray areas in my work that you may not even think about. You may think, you work for a church call, and that must be really easy to go to work and not deal with any of those tensions. But I deal with selling out every single day when I walk into the workplace. Because I realized that the people that Jesus was most critical of and actually were behind the plot of his assassination were religious leaders and institutions. And so there's a real risk that when we don't think that there's gray area, that's actually the most dangerous place to be because sometimes we betray what God has called us to most. And so I'm not exempt from this conversation. There are questions that I ask all the time that I struggle with in my work. Am I living more like Jesus or the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus? Am I promoting the kingdom of God or am I more promoting the agenda of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ? Because it's dangerous when we start to substitute church for the work of God and his kingdom that happens all over this city, this county? Uh, Am I sharing the message of institutional loyalty or is it truly the message of Jesus? So as I offer this prayer this morning for all of you who are in that place, I want you to know I'm praying this prayer for me as well, because it's a struggle for all of us to figure out what it looks like in our work to follow Jesus with all that we have. Let's pray as we open up our time in the word this morning. Oh God, I speak and I pray to you, God, today in the midst of some real struggles, God, in the past and the present that that I know some are, are thinking through and are walking through. I don't know what it means to follow Jesus in the midst 
of, of, of commitments or, or questions or asking or, or just what's called of them in their work. And I pray today that you would, you, you would make things more clear, God. You would help us walk out with a clear sense of what it means to be your people in the midst of difficult times and difficult callings. And so, God, I thank you for the work that you've given us to do, for the callings that you've placed on each of our lives, for the abilities and the gifts that you pour into us. And I pray that we would figure out a way to walk into those callings with a more certain sense of your story and your way. And uh, I pray that you would align that today more clearly in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Jesus actually, I think, has something to say about those areas. And one of the places that he talks about is in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning or your phones that you want to pull out, John chapter 17 is where I want to read from this morning. John 17, beginning in verse 15. So this is Jesus' prayer at the end of his life. It's not the Garden of Gethsemane. He's got another prayer to pray, but he's with his disciples. This is an important kind of last words moment as Jesus is praying. John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So there's some principles that are really important here as we start out in John 17. Number one is this. Uh, God doesn't pull us out of the world. He doesn't call us out of the world. He actually calls us into the world. He says to the father, I'm praying that you not take them out of the world. Their call is to go right in the middle of the most difficult areas and, and to pursue Jesus way in that difficult time and place. At the same time, we're not to be of the world. So this instinct that we might have to protect ourselves or to take ourselves into Christian ghettos, right? Where we can kind of be protected and not have to answer hard questions or deal with difficult things. That's not what Jesus prays for. He says, I'm I'm sending you into the world. You're not of that world. And then he says something significant too. He says, I'm praying in this. I think this is a help to us to know that Jesus prayed for our protection as we do that. Protect them from the evil one, Jesus says. And we need to know that. And in our lives, not all forces out there are for our good, right? The evil one is set out to try to create traps and and to to set up all kinds of hurdles for destruction. And a lot of us have found that in our own lives, that destructive way when we haven't followed the way of Jesus. There's a reality of spiritual warfare that's here. And Jesus, what I love is, is he's praying for us. Don't take them out of the world, Father, but protect them as they enter in, that they'll know who they are and they'll be protected from the evil one. So you were called to be in the world, but you aren't to be of this world, which is a great principle, but it's harder to work out in those really gray areas of our lives, isn't it? So on the one hand, I think there's really a balance that we're trying to strike here this morning. I want to talk about both extremes that I think Christians often fall into. And then I want to talk about how do we see this as a tension to be maintained, not uh, to be collapsed. So one edge of that balance or that scale is really uh, the temptation to to separate from the world. And some of us, some Christian groups have chosen that side, right? It's easier rather than dealing with assimilation and and becoming like the world. It's easier to just kind of step away from it to protect ourselves from it. And so we're, we're tempted to separate ourselves. We're tempted to believe that if we work for God without... Uh, then, then our conscience won't have struggles. So let's work in church buildings. And so I've heard this a lot in my ministry past is people who come to me and they say, man, I, I wish that I could work full time in a church. It would be so much easier to do that. Or maybe I feel that calling. And what I want to say is sometimes God calls people to that sort of thing. We, we should pay attention to those promptings. And I hope there will be some in our church who will grow up to be missionaries. They'll grow up to work in Christian organizations. I think it's a wonderful thing. But by no means, I hope you've seen through the series, do I believe that the only kind of Christian work there is, is inside a church building or inside a a Christian organization. 
A few years ago, a guy named Phil Vischer uh, was writing his story about what he had been through. Interestingly enough, Phil's going to be one of the ones who's speaking at this work as worship retreat we're having. Uh, you know Phil better in, in another way. He had this dream, Phil Vischer, as he sat at his computer to create one of the best known uh, characters in the Christian world. He was a graphic designer whose dream was to create basically a Christian version of Disney. And that's how Larry the Cucumber and Bob the Tomato arrived on the scene. Some of you know the song right now. It's going through your head. You remember it still, right? Or maybe you still are listening to this with young kids. But once the world met VeggieTales, they fell in love. Well, at least the Christian parents did, right? And I know a lot of you, uh, you can remember that song. You remember those scenes, maybe. You're, you're not alone. But within a few years, the company that had begun in this guy Phil's spare bedroom was the second largest producer of children's videos in the world. Think about that for a moment. Second biggest. And Phil Vischer, as he describes his story, says, I was killing myself for the Lord. And then the bubble burst. They overextended themselves. The company did. They made a movie that basically went bankrupt. And, and Phil had a lot of time to wrestle with God, trying to figure out how to pick up the pieces. And that's where he discovered that the gospel that he had begun to believe in wasn't really the gospel of Jesus Christ. He describes it more as the gospel of Jesus and Ben Franklin and Henry Ford. His work became who he was. And his value was built on what he could accomplish. Now, looking back, he says that this bankruptcy was one of the greatest things that could have happened to him in retrospect. And isn't that true in our lives? Sometimes the worst moments we think can't be redeemed become these marker moments that change our lives forever. But this is a quote from Phil in the midst of that time I thought was interesting as we talk about this this tendency to, to, to separate ourselves from the world. He says, I'm growing increasingly convinced that if every one of these kids trying with passion to write a Christian hit song or make that uh, hit Christian movie or start that hit Christian ministry to change the world would instead focus their passion on walking with God on a daily basis, the world would change because the world learns about God, not by watching Christian movies, but by watching Christians. I love that impulse from Phil, don't you? Because we have this idea that something has to be called Christian for it to count. And as I've said, I, I've had people come up to me for years saying, if I could just work in a Christian full-time ministry, everything would be easier. But here's the truth for all of us, no matter where we work, in churches or outside of them. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are in full-time ministry. You're in full-time ministry. It doesn't matter what the title of your company is because we don't turn off that switch. We are all disciples no matter we find ourselves, where we find ourselves in our callings because church isn't the, always the best place to serve God at. In fact, depending on your skill set, it may be the worst place to serve God at because in reality, God is interested in you following Jesus exactly where you are and where you've been called. The goal is not to go somewhere else. It's to be transformed so that we can transform the world that we are in. He called you to live out Jesus' way in the world. And so one of the temptations, as we've talked about, is to to separate ourselves. And you can think of Christian movements that have done that. Maybe some of you have found yourself in that place. But the other temptation is the opposite extreme. And that extreme is to assimilate ourselves with the world. We come to look too much like the world. We we really have no distinction or no difference from anyone else who wouldn't claim the, the, the title Christian. Think about it for a moment. What makes you different because you are a Christian? What makes you a different banker? What makes you a different teacher? What makes you a different mom? Or what makes you, a, what makes you different in the work and the calling that you have? If there's not a significant difference, then my curiosity is, what does that term Christian really mean? See, the other extreme is to, to assimilate with the world. 
And I don't think we make this decision because we're bad people more often. I think we choose this extreme because we aren't real sure how to take these principles of the Christian way and, and make that matter in the 40 or 50 or 70 hours that we work each week. We were trained in, in our job, whether that was on the job training or that was the university we went to that trained us for oppression. We were trained to see the world in a certain way. If you're an engineer, you, you see the world differently than an artist does, right? Or if you've been trained theologically for Christian work, I, I see the world differently than somebody who's trained to see the world with numbers and see the bottom line. And, and so your training trains you to see the world in, in a certain way. Um, many of us were taught to pay attention to bottom lines and economic principles and, and the quotas that our employers have given us. And our churches haven't always given us training to see the world through the lens of the kingdom of God. To counter that other training, to imagine a way that Christians might interact in our sphere of influence. But if Jesus is our primary commitment, I think his way, his truth, and his life ought to impact the way we see the work that we're called to do. Some out there in the world have seen this kind of uh, separatist way of seeing things and said, you know, Christians are are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. So some of us have reacted against that to say, well, I want to be of earthly good. I want to make a difference. I'm not sure how to bring this together. And if your commitment to Jesus is purely a way to get into heaven, then I can see where that phrase might be right. But my belief is that Christians ought to be of tremendous worthly good in addition to the good we offer in the afterlife. Our hope is larger than that. In fact, the principles that Jesus teaches, I think the way of Jesus is the best way of life possible. I haven't just taken on Jesus because of an eternal life insurance policy. I've taken on Jesus because I believe it's actually the healthiest, best way to be human, the way to live in this life. So when I look at the principles of Jesus, I look at the things he taught. and I think, you know, if businesses would put this into practice, it would actually make the world, it would make their business a better place. Think about hospitality industry, right? I mean, I've heard out of people who aren't even Christian uh, name the, 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 their places of business and the core values they have. And it's as if they're naming the golden rule when they're describing what it is to do good hospitality. Because Jesus knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just talking about the afterlife. Or, or take Matthew 18, right? This principle about conflict resolution that Jesus talks about in the second half of that chapter. When you have a problem with a brother or sister, you go directly to them. And, and if that still doesn't work it out, then you take someone else along. That's great church ministry stuff. And I'm telling you, it would change the bottom line in businesses. If businesses would learn to, to get rid of the conflicts that are there and to begin to actually deal with the conflicts head on. Jesus knew what he was talking about. Or take the virtues of mercy and humility. Before Jesus shows up on the scene, mercy and humility aren't virtues at all. Jesus is the one who preaches that in a whole new way and says, actually, it's a good thing to be merciful to people. That wasn't true in the first century. Humility is actually a great gift to the world. Boy, what would we love for our bosses to show more mercy and humility, right? Jesus knows what he's talking about. In fact, the other day, Galen was telling the story, Galen Jones, one of our ministers, about uh, getting the chance to work with Southwest Airlines. And they had some union workers that needed some some work with conflict resolution and with leadership developments. They called Galen in and I would have loved to have seen that scene, right? Galen walking into this office, but, but he got this opportunity to teach these principles about conflict resolution, about leadership development. And, and after that day, there were some workers that came up and they said, Hey, that's really good stuff. Where did you get that? And he said, you ever read the Bible before? Galen wasn't beating him over the head with the Bible. All he was doing was he was taking the principles of Jesus and trying to say, this makes a difference here as well. And there were Christians who were there that said, now, how are you reading the Bible? Because my preachers never taught on anything like that. 
What Jesus teaches makes sense. And, and you don't have to beat people over the head with a Bible. Just live out the principles that are there. And it looks so different in the world if you can find a way to pattern your life after it. The gospel, the good news, is not just good news for the afterlife. It's also good news for this life. But none of that may speak directly to your situation this morning. The one I recalled at the very beginning of the sermon, that gray moment in your industry and your work that was the most challenging to follow Jesus in the midst of that. And some of you may look back, like I said, and you may think, man, I, I did great. I wouldn't change anything about how I interact in that situation. I stood up and maybe some of you lost your job because you made a decision that you couldn't follow certain routes that you're being asked to follow. Others of you may look back and you may think, man, I wish I'd handle that differently. And the next time that comes up, I hope I'll be able to manage that differently than I did. I don't think shame is really helpful in our growth. I I think guilt can be. Guilt can lead us to repentance. But shame says, I'm a bad person. Guilt says, I made a bad decision. And God always calls us back from guilt to repentance to move into new ways. And so if you, you look back on that moment and you think, I could have done better, there's a chance always for repentance to move forward and do better the next time. It's not about shame. But if we're going to be people of integrity, it will happen not because we make good, good decisions in the spot, in the moment, when it's the grayest. We're going to be people of integrity because we make that decision ahead of time. You don't make good decisions just all of a sudden. What discipleship is, is it's a journey to begin to prepare ourselves for that moment it's needed most so that we respond naturally with the way we ought to. We are people of integrity, not because we make good decisions when the cameras are rolling. People of integrity are people who do that when no one's watching, right? That's what integrity is. It's what we do when no one else is watching. And as I said, the only way that's going to happen to be a person of integrity is to practice this day in and day out through the spiritual disciplines and through training ourselves so that we know how to interact on the spot. And that principle is true if you spend a lot of time in hotels and in airports on the road in your work. It's true if you're in close proximity to people that you find attraction to in the workplace. You're going to have to prepare ahead of time for those moments to make the right decision. It's true if you have a boss who continually asks your employees to do things to cut unethical corners in your work. And it's true if you're the boss who may be calling others to do the same. And maybe you're wondering about where in the scriptures we might go. Like, where would you go if you were to think about this whole idea of ethics and gray areas and following Jesus? And I would tell you, there's a lot here. In fact, today, I just want to go to two stories real briefly. So stories, both of these come from the exile, right? So Israel's not in their homeland. Things aren't, it's not a Christian land that they're living in. They're living under rulers that are believing in different gods. And Israel's got to figure out how do we do life in this new context in the midst of exile? So there's several stories like that, but a couple of them are the stories of Daniel and Esther. So a few months ago, we walked through the story of Daniel. You remember? Believers in Babylon is what we call the series. And we preached through that whole series and we realized that Daniel's dealing with difficult situation. It may look a lot like your work. If you find yourself in a godless culture of work, Daniel certainly understands. And Daniel always has to kind of find this fine line between of walking a way that would show respect to people who aren't necessarily people of faith or people of integrity, but also doing what God wants. And it's hard when you know that you've got God as your authority and you've got a godless king as your authority. So throughout his time in Babylon, Daniel's responding to pagan leaders with gentleness and kindness and respect. There's no other way that he could have risen up the ranks without people knowing that he was truly honoring them and not trying to cut them down. And so for some of us, that may be a struggle because of the particular bosses or people that we work with. It may be really hard to show respect and kindness in the midst of what we're being called to do. That's what Daniel finds a way to do. But Daniel also has a line that he won't step over. 
He has, he has a sense of integrity that he knows there's certain lines that I can't follow if I'm going to be a follower of this God. In fact, this story is very similar to the book of Genesis, the, book of jo- the story of Joseph. You remember him? Joseph has to find his way with Pharaoh, and he, he rises to second in the entire land. And he does that through respect to a godless ruler, but also knowing when he can't step over the line and do what's wrong. And he gets punished even when he shows integrity. It doesn't mean our lives are going to go easy because we choose to do this. But Daniel knew the difference between what God forbid and what God didn't like. And that's an interesting line, isn't it? There's certain things that God forbids, and there's certain things that may not be the best way that God would want us to do. And knowing that line is really important, right? There were times when Daniel knew God forbids this. You remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to, to, to bow down to the idol in front of them. They refused to do that. They said, no, this is over the line. We don't do that. But at the same time, Daniel was the top in his class when they studied astrology there. It was just the common way you educated people. And Daniel didn't say, I can't do that. He sat through those classes and he rose through the ranks because he was willing to find that gray area and that zone with respect, even when it may not have been the story that he believed most. So Daniel learns to walk that line carefully. He lives in such a way that the king of Babylon knows he has his interest at heart. And it leads him to a greater place in the kingdom. Esther faces a similar dilemma. If you think back to her story. The book of Esther is actually about a woman with power and civil government who works against racial injustice and hatred against her own people. She lives as close to the strings of power as some of you do in your own work. And and let's get real. Esther does not win the crown through an innocent beauty contest. She's forced to sleep her way to the top. She has her own me too moment. And though she's forced into an impossible situation, she doesn't have a clear conscience. If you remember back, part of the reason she wins this queenship is because she doesn't reveal her Hebrew identity. Like the king signs off on all the Jews dying and he doesn't know that that's his own wife. that's going to end up dying. And so she's held back a part of who she is as she enters into this. And you remember what her uncle Mordecai reminds her in this season? It's maybe a word you need to be reminded of right now as you wonder, what am I called to do? And how do I interact in this kind of difficult work culture that I'm in. Her uncle Mordecai, maybe you need to hear this from me this morning, like she did from Mordecai says, you know, maybe you've been called to this place and this time for such a time as this. Maybe I need to say the same thing to you today. You may think I I can't possibly be called to this. There's, there's nothing godly about the culture I'm in. That was true for Esther as well. And what Mordecai says is it's time for you to step up. It's time for you to realize the calling that you have. It's time for you to risk everything for the sake of your people. So they're not exterminated and the story of God can continue on. So you might be in a position right now where God has placed you for a specific purpose. And won't that change everything about your work? If you were to believe that about where you were called to know, I can't quite figure it out yet about how this works out, but For whatever it is that God's calling me into next, what I want to believe and trust is that God has me here for a reason. And that something's going to happen if I'm faithful to his calling. But there's a risk with Esther as well, because she's in this gray area and she may respond to all kinds of ways. But if you find yourself in a place of influence, I don't want you to get comfortable in that place. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, well, I'll just kind of carry on the work and I'll retire and make sure everything's taken care of for my family. But if you're unwilling to risk using your place in the palace for your neighbors, the palace owns you. Your influence can't be used if the palace is the one that decides for you when you say yes and when you say no and how high you jump. There are certain key moments where you have to risk the palace in order to do the right thing for the influence God has given to you. 
And maybe you're coming to one of those places where you're going to have to stand up. And maybe it's going to cost you a lot. This could have cost a lot in Esther's life. But never gain that influence. Never find your position in the palace so that you have to bow to the palace every time. People of God are called to have influence where they are. And sometimes that means being faithful and respecting and showing honor in ways that Daniel does in ways I, I struggle to know how he did it. Sometimes it means you're in that moment where God's called you for this time, for such a time as this. God has not given you influence so you can sit on a healthy paycheck and take retirement. God has given you a place of influence because he wants you to influence for the good and for the sake of those who need your help. So Esther has this decision to make. There's an edict that's going to result in the death of all of these people. Will she speak up or will she remain silent? She speaks up and God works through her speaking up and saves the Jewish nation. Now, in, in the midst of this balance, right, we've talked about how some choose to separate and how some choose to assimilate, and we love clear principles. We, I'd love to send you out with a clear principle to say, this is how it works, and this is how it works in your particular situation, but that's not what we have. The way Jesus comes to us is with a, a paradox, a tension that he holds in balance, right? He doesn't say, I want you to separate from the world. No, he actually prays, Father, don't take them out of the world. And he doesn't allow us to just assimilate in and not look any different. He says, I'm praying against the evil one and his schemes. You're not of the world. And so Jesus comes to us with a a principle. It's a clear one. It's just, it's a tension. It's a paradox to be maintained, right? It's a balancing act. And he says, you're to be in the world, but you're not to be of the world. And as we close our time in in, in the next several minutes, what I want to do is have you think about that phrase. When it comes to Monday morning, when it comes to the work that you have ahead of you, when it comes to whatever change may be happening in your life or the calling, I want you to figure out what does it look like not to separate, not to assimilate, but to be in the world, but not of the world. Christians in the last 80 years have known how to separate. We've done that. We've known how to assimilate as well. But as I think about the separation piece, in general, Christians' reaction to popular culture, especially in the last 80 years or so, has been a form of disengagement. Music and movies and television have been sweepingly evaluated as dangerous and polluting and degrading. And and much of it is, let's be honest, right? So what Christians have done is we've withdrawn. We've withdrawn from watching. But if you've noticed, Christians have withdrawn from producing this kind of content as well. We've gone in like Phil Vischer. We've gone to certain segments of society. And we've, we've not gotten our story out in the public way that so many others are telling the story. And so one form of this withdrawal has been renunciation. We just kind of wash our hands and we walk away from it. Another has been, like I described, to create a a subculture, an alternative subculture littered with sanitized, overtly evangelistic forms of music and movies and TV shows and literature and vacation destinations and cruises, like all Christians all the time. And that's one of the ways we separated. Another is just uncritical uh, consumption. We've just taken on the world. We've taken on Netflix and we've not had any picture about how the kingdom should shape us to rethink that message. And we just take in these narratives whole and we, we move on with our lives. I think we can do better than that. But others in other generations and in our own generation have chosen to assimilate, right? I mean, think about this side of things when it comes to culture. I think particularly about a moment in history where this happened. It was Emperor Constantine who was trying to figure out a way forward for the Roman Empire in the fourth century. And he, he, he allows uh, persecution not to be a factor anymore for Christians. Great winning day, right, for Christians. They got to be so excited that now we don't have to be under threat to worship God. But by the end of the century... Now Christianity becomes the primary religion of the Roman Empire. In a hundred years, it goes from persecuted minority to now 
the official religion. That sounds like a great win for Christianity, but what the problem is when, when Christianity assimilates with culture in a way, all of a sudden that power goes to our heads and, and the crusades become a part and a result of this. And all of a sudden the power of, you know, of those in charge of the church becomes the same thing. And we end up, you know, persecuting people that were the ones persecuting us. And I think about that danger in our culture of this kind of balance. How do we find ourselves away from, from separation, but also not assimilated so closely? And how do we find that balance? And, and so I was thinking about how the end of the sermon, because you know, it's really hard as a, as a preacher sometimes to know how to land the plane, right? Sometimes you see me circle and you're like, just land the plane. Like this thing's over, right? This morning I want to try to do that, but here's the way I want to do that. I, I don't have a, a, a plane to land this morning. I don't have a closeout. We love bows and nice principles to kind of walk out with or to do. Some of you love to-dos and you got your paper ready right now. What is it I need to do, right? I'm sorry to disappoint you this morning. Today's not one of those. But but what I want us to do in our groups uh, today, in the groups that are going to meet this week, and maybe if you don't have a group, maybe you want to gather with people who are in your same industry at our church right now that maybe you're, you're struggling with. What is this balance between separation and assimilation? Maybe there's people that you want to gather with just about this question this week. I want, to, I want us to ask a question this week about this kind of balance. How do we strike a, a balance between separation and assimilation? How do we take this principle that Jesus gives us, this paradox, this tension of being in the world, but not being of the world? How do we work that out in the particular calling and work that God has given to us? It's probably going to take more than just you with your Bible to figure this out, right? What I would love is to create pockets in our church who are people of different professions and occupations that get to work this out together. Wouldn't it be great to walk with different real estate agents or to walk with people who are, who are in your line of work and the, as a teacher, what does it look like to do this in the midst of the realities that I walk through in my classroom or whatever it is that you do? So in our groups this week, we're going to have this conversation. Are you more tempted towards separation or assimilation? And what does it look like to find a, a greater balance, a greater tension, a greater paradox that Jesus wants to hold on to? What does it look like to be in the world but not of the world. So I leave you with a struggle today, a struggle I've been leaving you with. I, maybe you've noticed this is what I like to do is I, I'm a thinker. I'm a struggler. And so I love to kind of sit with that. But after two weeks, it's time to pass that off and bless you with it. Okay. So you've got the struggle to continue. What does it look like in your work to find this balance between separation and assimilation to be in the world, but to be in the world with a purpose and not of the world. Remember Jesus has prayed for your protection. I hope that will be a blessing as well as you walk through this. Jesus saved his harshest criticisms for those who were religious elite of his day that were part of that undercover plot to get him killed. And so as I'm asking you to struggle, I'm going to continue to struggle myself because this is a concern every time I walk into this place, whether it's Sunday morning or it's Monday is, am I more like the Pharisees or am I more like Jesus? Or or maybe am I more like the Amish or am I more like other churches that don't have any distinction against uh, different from the world, right? What does it look like to be in the world, but not of the world? So I'll leave you with this today. Struggle with me if you would. Let's pray as we close this morning. God, we, we thank you so much for your word and for your scriptures. that It leads us into all truth, God. And we thank you for your spirit that does the same, that reminds us of everything that Jesus taught us to do. So God, today in the midst of people who have real gray areas that they're walking into tomorrow morning, or maybe with emails even later tonight, or maybe they found themselves, God, in the midst of habits while they're on the road, or maybe they've, they've struggled to, to find how to break off that relationship that's going to a place it shouldn't go. God, there are all kinds of places and problems and difficulties of finding ourselves in work and trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Give us, uh, thank you for the examples of, of, of Daniel and Esther and others, God, that have walked this line ahead of us. 
And I pray that in our groups this week, as we discuss this, that we, we might find that balance uh, more clearly for our lives. So God, for those who are in that, that separation mode, I want to I challenge them today, God. I want to I pray that you would lead them through your spirit into bolder proclamation in the world of the gospel. And God, for those who are on the other side who found themselves assimilated with the world and maybe don't feel as distinct as they, they want to be, God, I pray you give them a desire to, to, to find ways to, to, to make themselves more distinct in the world, God. To not be of the world, God, as they're in it. Guide us this week and give us encouragement. Give us eyesight to see, God, and help us walk in your way. Because we trust that the way of Jesus is the best way of life for the afterlife and for this life. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.